more verses of Ephesians, and then on the 11th, we're going to do the, the questions. So uh, I put some slips of paper out there by the box, the super secret, ultra secure box for you to submit questions uh, into between tonight and next Wednesday night. I love that. The discussion leaders are like, yeah, we already know, blah, blah, blah. We're just going to stay out here as long as we can. Um, so, yeah, really encourage you to sum- submit questions. We were joking about having an award for the best question. Questions will remain anonymous. Uh, so submit those questions as you so desire. Um, yeah, that's what I got. Oh, Welcome. Thanks for coming. I thought maybe you guys were just going to open the doors and slide the couch a little closer. <laughs> it was just ironic that all the discussion leaders were just like hanging out on the couches rather than coming in to, to engage. Yeah. All right, let's pray and then um, we'll jump in to tonight's text. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come tonight and we thank you for the opportunity to be together. Uh, I thank you for each one of these individuals that desires to grow in you and thank you for this place that we get to gather and unite as your body in a local context. And we just pray that as we continue to walk through this letter uh, to the Ephesians, that we would deepen our understanding of who you are. And then as we seek to Apply it to our lives. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us, that you would guide that process, and that you would move in us in a way that we can seek to accomplish what you desire from us and for us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, as we've been talking throughout the book of the letter to the Ephesian church, uh, there's so many themes that are playing on top of each other, and I know as we as we break this down and, and segment it out, we can have a tendency to misunderstand certain sections because we watch them in, or listen to them, hear them, read them in isolation from one another. Uh, you know, it's when you're watching a, a show or maybe you haven't watched a show for a while and then you're like, oh yeah, I should probably go back and re-watch the previous show, um, the previous episode so I remember what's happening. <laughs> what's happening, and then you watch half it, and you're like, oh, I think I've already watched this part. Um, That's right. I'm one episode ahead. So I want us to continue to go back to where we started a few weeks ago uh, in verse 21 of chapter 5 as we hold this overarching concept of mutual submission uh, in, in its proper place as everything flows out of the mutual submission. So, again, 521, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So within that context, now we've gotten into these, uh, what is deemed as the household codes. Last week, talking about uh, the marriage relationship. Now we get into uh, parent-child relationships. Uh, Children, uh, we're in verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as, the, as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether you are a bond servant or free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So we get into another group of individuals, and we're looking at, um, again, this mutuality and reciprocity within relationships. And as we had talked about last week, and as we'll uh, look at this week, Paul intentionally highlights three distinct groups within Roman society that would have been uh, less than, that would have been in this power dynamic uh, that he finds extremely important to address. One thing we need to be aware of as we are, again, hearing these words or reading these words is that this is a very small group of individuals who are gathered together in a house church. And all of the people, all of the groups that Paul is addressing are together hearing the same words. So it's not that Paul is addressing a group of parents um, or a group of children. He's addressing all of them together in the same place. And he starts out this address by referencing one of the Ten Commandments. And he does it by in the form of quotes. But before that, he says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then the commandment is to honor your father and mother, which we have to understand with children, and we just did a child dedication on Sunday. Children in the ancient Near Eastern world were like the other two categories, they were property. They were not seen as human beings in the sense of full standing human beings. Infant mortality within the Roman world, they estimate was about 50% by the age of 10. So if you had six children, only three of them would make it to age 11. (laughs) which is a really shocking statistic to understand how children were viewed within the home. And so Paul is wanting to change those dynamics, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. And and when we interpret the Old Testament, we have to do so in light of the New Testament. And a lot of what we see are similar to this uh, reference here, to uh, the Ten Commandments, we think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about, you know, you've heard this, but I tell you this. So, certainly, they all would have known to honor your father and mother uh, as one of the commandments. And so this obedience thing is a slight shift. Also, what we need to understand 
is that Paul has changed his wording. He didn't tell wives to, to obey their husbands. Likewise, he doesn't explicitly tell children to submit to their parents. But in some ways, he already has because he's called us all to mutual submission. So we have this interesting distinction between what is the difference between obedience and honor? What does it look like to honor one's parent? And what does it look like to become obedient to one's parent? And as we were talking about at, at lunch, we were for some of us, as we hear certain words, they come through the cultural lenses that we've all inherited from the culture that we've grown up in. And so for certain uh, individuals, when you think about uh, your parents, you have certain words that have a more interesting level of, uh, shall I say, weight. So for me, um, I was obedient in particular to my dad because he would inflict severe harm on me physically if I was not obedient. We had this great, uh, great Holst family lore. We had a pizza paddle that wasn't for pizza. <laughs> I love it. You, you barely start a story and some of you are like, oh yeah, amen. Mm-hmm. And then the infamous incident where my middle brother, um, he had buns of steel before buns of steel were a thing. Breaks the paddle. My dad takes the paddle, staples it back together, drills some holes in it to re reduce airflow or reduce, you know, drag so he could inflict more harm. Or the time uh, that I was at the, uh, what do they call it? Oh, yeah, the police station in seventh grade, and he grabbed me by the throat um, and said, if you ever... Make me come back here again. Basically, your life is over. So as we talk about obedience and honor, these are two different categories. <laughs> because we can be obedient without honoring, and we can honor, well, I don't think we can do it the other way around. And so as we talk about this importance of honoring uh, one's parents. Yes, Paul does mention this sidebar, which is in parentheses about this first commandment with a promise, which technically isn't true because there, there's other commandments that come before that that have promises. So what is exactly is Paul saying? Part of it, as I think about this, is within Deuteronomy, we think of Deuteronomic theology, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Do good would be to honor your parents and if you honor your parents, things will go well for you. Well, what does that look like? Well, part of it looks like you know, your, your parents are older than you, naturally. Your parents have experienced some things that you haven't experienced. And so by listening to them, being obedient to them, and, and honoring them by following their instructions, you can avoid some simple mistakes. And I think uh, the irony of this is that most of these kids would have left their homes before they were full-blown teenagers because 
people got married a lot earlier and all these things. Um, Were teenagers the same back then as they are now? I don't know. Because for some reason within the teenage brain, parents are, well, the dumbest human beings in the world. And yet, to honor one's parents, to listen to one's parents, has some grand repercussions, some grand benefit. Things will go well with you. You won't end up at the police station. (laughs) Or, you know, lots of other things that we won't talk about. Can't wait? (laughs) We can talk when we're not recording and broadcasting all over the internet. My... Minor record has been expunged. <laughs> and so this, this is interesting. And another interesting thing, which is a question I think we need to ask ourselves, is at what point does this instruction end? At what point does obeying one's parents and honoring one's parents terminate? And as we know, within many other cultures across the world, the uh, familial dynamics of multi-generational homes is a reality. For us in the United States, we don't often live in that uh, reality. And if you want to read a fascinating book about understanding this, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, he has some really great insight on how Americans have created a whole system of elderly care so as to not have to deal with our parents as they get old and frail. Which, did you, you hear that? That was a can of worms that I opened that I'm just going to like leave over here. <laughs> it does beg the question though, what does it mean to honor our parents, as we become adults or as we become parents? And is there a term limit on this thing that Paul is commanding us to do? Certainly there, there could have been children, parents, and grandparents all sitting together within the same uh, gathering. Furthermore, if you remember last week, Paul is also quoting out of the Old Testament to talk about how men leave their parents and cling and become, two, or become one flesh with their wife. And so what does that have to do? What does that do with all of our family dynamics? So often as we read texts, and we read texts with great care and patience, we actually get... M- more confused, more questions than having our questions answered because we're like, well, what about this? And how does this apply to this? And, and, and is obedience and honor, is this two different things? And, and it, well, if I have left my parents, do I still need to honor my parents because now I have a new family, which is my wife, and how, how does that work? And then how do we interpret the ancient Near Eastern culture within what Paul is writing about. This is where he becomes, he does the Jesus Sermon on the Mount thing, where 
where you think, okay, that's the end. Let's move on. We just tell the kids, obey your parents. Let's move on. But, but he changes it from what we would expect. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because these children that in a Roman context have little to no value. They are expendable. They are used and reared to either uh, continue the family line or to uh, help out in the family business. There were children that would just be left out, especially girls would just be left out to, to exposure to die because the family was like, well, we'll just let's try for another one and we'll have a boy hopefully this next time. And Paul is saying, no, parents, you also have a responsibility. It's not just the, par- the children have the responsibility to the parents. The parents have a responsibility to the children. And the responsibility is to not provoke them. To not provoke them. This is extremely hard for me. This has become more and more challenging for me as my children have grown older. And in particular, um, you know like you ever watch one of those movies and, and like there's, there's two sets of solution and if they hit the button and the solutions combine, we have a problem. You're familiar, right? Wasn't there a bomb in speed where we had that problem? Yes? Because separately, they're basically inert things, but when combined, look out, because we are about to have an explosion. I'm not saying that's Wyatt and I all the time, but certainly it's never too far away. And why is it that we enjoy just poking, just a gentle poke in the right spot to watch the fireworks. Right? Or he knows the right spot to poke me. And rather than responding in, how does Paul say it? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with... Remember, remember all that? I get poked. Whatcha? Not really. But verbally, because then we just incite a war, and then Nikki comes out and she's like, what just happened? Well, he said this. Well, he said that. And as we would say, the rest is history. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This thing changes the dynamic of how parents are to relate to their kids. And again, for this Roman context, it would have been so countercultural, so revolutionary for a, for a father in some ways 
to put their child's needs before their own, to honor their child by not instigating a fight or instigating anger. And he gives this great contrastive but, you know, as we've been talking about all these different extremes, you know, either this or that. So don't do this. No poking, no prodding, no provoking. Rather, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, for the authoritarians parts of us, we say we are to discipline them in the Lord. That's not what it says. This concept of discipline is to instruct, to guide, to teach. To be a disciple is to be an imitator of a teacher. So to bring our children up in the the ways, the practices, we call them spiritual disciplines, the practices and instruction of the Lord. And if we are doing that, if we are raising our children in the Lord, then we are less apt to prod and provoke. The two things don't, cannot coexist at the same time. And for far too long, we, we can believe that, and maybe we're doing it right now, we're quoting Scripture to ourselves to argue against this position of, well, you got to spare the rod and you spoil the child and all, all of these things, again, how we interpret Old Testament text has to be through the lens of the new covenant that is Jesus Christ. And so this is not saying don't discipline your children. It's saying as we instruct and bring them up, we teach them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we go off the rails when we say, you will obey me as long as you live in this house because I'm the parent. We've talked about this before, right? And how many countless, countless children are raised by dictatorial, authoritative parents who bring them to church all the while provoking them to anger and wonder when they turn 18 why they walk away from the church. Because our children say, if that is what it means to be a Christian, how my parent treats me, I have no interest. I have no interest in believing in a God who would create a parent that treats me in this way. And that's where, as we look at the context of this corporate relationship that is the body of Christ, for, for some of us, as we talked about last week, when we talk in specific categories, we say, well, I don't have, I don't, I don't have kids, so this doesn't apply to me. The challenge is, we all have children. Because if we are one body, then we are together collectively rearing children together. 
And that's why it is so important for us to be actively and highly engaged and involved with the ministries that happen that way, down that hallway, on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night. Because we all are seeking to raise our children to know the Lord. And we know that, that especially on Wednesday nights, we have numerous children that get dropped off at the front door, that spend their evening with us, that may be going home to who knows what. And we have this opportunity as the body of Christ to come around these kids, these children, and to show them what it means to be a person of faith, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to grow up within the spiritual disciplines and instruction of the Lord. And it's an amazing gift that we have as these children show up. And they're not just this annoyance. They're not just, we're not just doing childcare down there. We're not just babysitting. We're doing what Paul is talking about to the Ephesian church. And just because we have children doesn't, don't have children doesn't mean that we are off the hook. And just because maybe our children are out of our homes doesn't mean we're off the hook. Because, again, we, as a body, have a whole host of kids that God is bringing up within our midst. And as Paul is talking about, these children are co-equals. These children are just as important as we are. And, and I heard uh, John was, was having a conversation with Amanda, and, and so often in the church, like, well, we can view children as, how do I say this nicely? Economic leeches. They don't put anything in the offering. They don't contribute. So how can they have an equal standing within the body as we do? We're adults. But that's not the dynamic that Paul is talking about as he talks about the Ephesian church. And if, again, we are going to read this text and we are going to seek to apply it to our lives, then we need to hear it as a body and the importance of children to the Lord. They are co-equals within the body. And I know for some of us, you know, we talk about this pendulum swing. Back in the day, the Romans were like, ah, kids are expendable. And unfortunately, at times today, kids are worshipped as if they are the most important thing in the world. And the answer is somewhere in the middle. And we have to know the importance of a child's life and the experiences they have. And I'm going through this book currently called The Body Keeps the Score, and the author references Martin Teacher's uh, journal in the Scientific American about uh, 
kids and their experiences and the importance of caring for kids when they're young. He says, our brains are sculpted by our early experiences. Maltreatment is a chisel that shapes a brain to contend with strife, but at the cost of deep, enduring wounds. Childhood abuse isn't something you get over. It is something we need to acknowledge and confront if we intend to do anything about the unchecked cycle of violence in this country. So how we view and care for our children, not only in our own homes, but within our body and within our environment that is our current world, has significant, long-lasting repercussions. And if we are going to be people of God, then we need to have an important focus on the value of children and raising them to know the Lord. Not just on them being quiet and obedient. Well, should we just stop there? Then he goes on to talk to this group called slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, they will receive back from the Lord whether they are a slave or are free. Now, I know... Sometimes we just, we get tired of talking about this stuff, right? And, and as somebody said, well, how many people do you think that are at Wednesday night believe that slavery is a good thing? Oh. Zero would be my answer. Zero. The challenge, though, in just, again, turning a blind eye or saying that was in the past and let the past be in the past, is the big challenge with this text is how the church has used the Bible in such inappropriate ways to gain earthly things for themselves. And I know we, we say, well, uh, Slavery back then was different. Or we say, well, Paul isn't condemning slavery, so, so it's Paul's fault because it wasn't specifically talked against in the Bible. And I acknowledge that slavery within the ancient Near Eastern context was vastly different. How was it different? Well, slavery in... Uh, the ancient Near East was not based on ethnicity. It was based on the reality that existed back then. You didn't have any money, and you either lived on the streets or you became an indentured servant. That was your choice. You were conquered, 
uh, as a nation or a people group by a stronger group, and they enslaved you. Not your choice. <laughs> um, you had a child, and you couldn't care for that child, and you needed some money. So you cho- sold your child into slavery. Not that child's choice. You could get out of slavery. You could do enough to earn your way out of slavery. That is true. What Paul is doing here is something markedly different that was taking place within the culture. And for us to just say, yeah, 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 we have already talked about this, we're done talking about it, is to, again, misunderstand how we, the church, have used God's sacred text in a way for our own earthly gain that is completely inappropriate. And if we just pretend it didn't happen or ignore that it ever happened, then we are bound to repeat it and we in a lot of ways, continue to repeat the misuse of Scripture for our own benefit. And we know in America, the church loved having slaves because they had slave quarters where they would take the the slaves from their ships and put them in the church basement. And I could spend... Hours upon hours talking about the gruesome and brutal reality of the church's complacency and active participation in the furthering of slavery in the United States based on passages like this. Slave owners would instruct their slaves that, yes, convert to Jesus, be baptized, you're still not a human being. You're still not a full human being. You're my property. Here, let me give you this Bible while I cut out large sections that may give you an idea of who God is that would cause you to question my authority and position over you as the owner of you. And I'm not talking just generally speaking. I'm talking specifically within the body of Christ. And so, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And it is the essence of privilege to not have to talk about things that make us uncomfortable. So how do we not take God's sacred text and misuse it? Well, we interpret it correctly. We read along with this passage, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We acknowledge that we are all the same. We are all the same. There is no hierarchy that exists within creation within humanity, certainly within the body of Christ. I mean, 
you don't, one cannot read, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. One cannot read that and then go home and whip and beat and brutalize one's slaves. And yet, that happened all the time. And it happened with people who were in charge of caring for the body of Christ because they were the pastors who possessed their slaves for their own financial benefit. And what Paul is calling us to is a complete change in the social dynamics and the guidelines for relationality. So there is no distinction. There is no hierarchy. There is no power over. There is only power under that is through submission, which is the way of Jesus Christ. And so then as we read this, we, we had this challenge because we try to rationalize it and we say, well, it was an employer-employee relationship. No. I'm not the property of my boss. I'm not the property of John Just or Timberwood Church. So then we ask ourselves, well, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with this text that is so culturally located within the church at Ephesus that, that is a culture that we are not living in today that is talking about slavery that doesn't technically exist within our environment? What do we do with that? Do we just say, well, I guess that doesn't apply to us. And we talk about how the most important thing that we do when we go to the text is we try to understand what was it that Paul was trying to communicate to the Ephesian church when he penned this letter. And he's trying to reorient the social dynamics, and he's saying, for those of you who are currently enslaved in a master's house, you need to behave differently. You need to carry yourself and live in a way that is different than the ways of the world or your fellow Roman counterparts. And how do you do that? You serve your master as you are serving Christ. Just like last week, when we talk about wives and husbands, the love that you share for your spouse is unto Christ. So in this context, you, if you are a slave, you work for your master as obedience to Christ. And you do so in a way that shines not only when they're looking at you, but also when they're not looking at you. Because you are not employed as a slave in this context, in an earthly setting. You need to have a heavenly mindset that your work is unto Christ. That's what he says. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord 
and not to man. So our obedience and our lives that we live in the present are not about honoring or working for fellow human beings. It's about everything we do is to Christ. As he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that this they will receive back from the Lord, whether a slave or free. And again, most of the time we think, okay, that's where it would end. And Paul says, no, that's not where it ends. That's just half of it. You owners do the same to them. So again, we see this mutuality and reciprocity within relationships that did not exist within the Roman Empire. If you're the owner, if you're the master of the house, you treat your slave like a slave, like your property, not as the same. Remember last week we talked about husbands love your wives as your own body. Like this is revolutionary concepts that Paul is talking about. So it's not just that that the servants are on the hook, it's that the masters are on the same hook that the servants are. And if you are a master within that context, this is not how you do life. (laughs) You don't treat your slaves as if they are equal. And Paul is saying, aha, but you do. That is what you are called to do. Stop your threatening. Do not treat them as subhuman. Because God is, in fact, master of everyone. See what he does there? He does this relational shift that, that as the, I mean, just imagine this. Because masters and slaves are together, worshiping together in this context. And, you know, and it's, it's like we, we've seen this progress, you know. Uh, the husbands are sitting there and Paul and the letters being read about wives submitting to your husbands and they're like, uh-huh, you listening? Not that we ever do that. Are you listening to this? This is for you. And then we shift and it's like, wait, what? Like some of this is about me? Imagine the look on the slave's face when the letter shifts. Like, I heard that. I heard that. Now you shouldn't be treating me the way you're treating me. I heard that. Because to be in Christ is to be completely countercultural. To be the opposite of how the world functions. And it's just, this is a letter that completely obliterates how to live in a world that we currently reside in because our relationships are completely flipped on their heads. So this is not a one-to-one correlation. This is not, we just pluck this out and we say, okay, this is an employee-employer relationship. Um, It's not that. This is... To say that a slave was an employee is to misread Scripture. It's just a complete misreading of Scripture. 
So we just, we own that, we acknowledge that, we just say, this is where we're at. This is not one-to-one, this is not one-to-one, this is a completely different scenario. However, how can we take God's word, hear who God is, hear God's heart, hear the charge that Paul has placed on disciples of Christ, and say, when we find ourselves in relationships like this, not the same, you know, it's like the difference between a simile and a metaphor. We know the difference, right? Right? 